So I've always encouraged people to ask questions. I think questions are important in church. I think they lead to answers, of course, and they lead to aha moments. Uh, You're never gonna get an answer if you don't ask a question. God's not intimidated by our questions. That's why I think Christianity is true. One of the reasons it's true is because it stands up to intellectual uh, debate and, and rigor. And in the Bible, is full of messy people. It's not trying to be something that it's not. Uh, and so questions are good. They lead to aha moments. Now, if you, I've been asked many questions over the years that people that are wondering about faith. And I was in youth ministry for a long time, so I would speak to teenagers all the time. Um, and when you speak to teenagers, you've got to keep it kind of short, right? You can't, you can't go on for 30 minutes. They kind of, you know, check out. Um, you know, squirrel, that sort of thing. So um, you keep about five, seven minutes, may, maybe ten, but you know, so the, a lot of the, these meetings are the same. You have like an opening game and like some songs, and then I would get up and talk, you know. There's this kid who would come in with a friend. This kid's parents didn't go to church, but he, but he would come with his, with his friend, and he would sit on the front row, um, and whenever I started to give a message, he had like a timer on his watch, and as soon as I started talking, I'd hear a little beep. And then I would talk, and then when it was over, he would go, beep, and he'd time me. And I was thinking, this kid's, this kid's special. He's special. Um, and so he would time me every single week, but he had really good questions. He would come to me uh, with stuff and wonder these, like, crazy ideas that no one had ever asked me before. And one Sunday, he came up, came up to me after the service, and he said, it wasn't even a question. He just came up to me, and he said, dinosaurs. Why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible? I said, well, that's a very deep theological question you've asked me. What you're really asking is the creation story. Can I trust the creation story or stories? There's actually two of them, but they're basically the same. Can I, can I trust that? And really, the creation story is not a recipe, but it's poetry. If God was ever going to describe to us how he made all of the heavens and the earth, we wouldn't understand it anyway. So he's given us some a poetry, now it's pretty beautiful that the recipe or that the poetry does go in line with science. We know that it does track with how we think things were made. Light came and then, then, then water and then earth came out of the water and then living beings. And it goes with what we see in God's creation, which is nature. And that science is not opposed to faith, but they're actually complementary of each other. And as I said all that to this kid, you could see this sort of thing happen above his head. And he was like, oh, ding, ding, ding. Another time I got asked a question, or it's not even a question, it was more of an accusation. You've probably heard this before. Um, the Bible was written by primitive people, so therefore it has no bearing on postmodern, enlightened people, educated people today. Now, the arrogance of that statement is pretty clear, uh, and it's implying a lot of enlightenment, uh, we're smarter than stuff. And it's really holding the Bible to a different standard than it were the works of antiquity. It's a double standard statement because they weren't primitive people. They weren't stupid. They were ancient people, but they weren't primitive. They're not Cro-Magnons writing on the wall. They're, 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 just, they're just ancient people. We don't discredit Plato and Aristotle for their works. They contributed to human history, so why should we do the same with the Bible? So, it's God has spoken to the whole of human history. His word is still relevant today outside of the context of culture and time. The Spirit's speaking through imperfect people, right? And another question people have said is, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. It was added later. Therefore, uh, it, we know that Trinity isn't part of God. Like, it was added 
after Jesus, and, and I've heard that before, it doesn't appear in Scripture. That's just not true. Because actually, the Old Testament, we see God referred to as Father repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Of course, you see the Spirit in the Old Testament, in Genesis, through the creation of the world, and other parts throughout Scripture. You see the Son, the Son of Man, appearing with Daniel in the, in the furnace. You see Son of Man, the references in Ezekiel. So there's lots of Trinity, actually. And even, even in Genesis 1, where God decides to create Adam, God, the Hebrew, says that let us create man in our image. There is a reference to Trinity from the very beginning, but that's okay. It's there in the Old Testament. It's also there in the New Testament. There's a story in Luke chapter 3 where the fullness of the Godhead is present in one place. And Luke actually gets to see this. And he records it in Luke chapter 3 where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appear at one place time. Starting in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, Luke's the only one that includes that. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's the only one that includes the detail that Jesus was praying. When, okay, I lost my place. (laughs) The heaven opened. So when Jesus prays, heaven's open. I'd like to think when I pray the heavens open or when you pray the heavens open, let let that be an encouragement to us that when we pray, there's a lot happening that we can't see. If we could see what was happening when we pray, we would probably never stop praying. But here Jesus is praying after his baptism. Heaven opens and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a bird, okay? So Luke is describing as best he can with what he is seeing. He's saying, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove in bodily form. The Holy Spirit is a personality, just like the Father and the Son. That's why we see personal pronouns describing the Spirit. So you see the, you see the Spirit, you see the Son, of course, present, and then a voice came from heaven, you are my Son, implying that he is the Father. The beloved, with you I am well pleased. So there you see in this, this story, you get a real aha moment here, that here you have Jesus, so I'm going to focus on this one, there's a lot of aha moments in those two verses, but the one I want to focus on is why would Jesus need to be baptized? Why? He doesn't have any sin. John the Baptist's ministry was focused on repentance and, and the remission of sin and clean starts. Jesus doesn't need a clean start. Why is Jesus being baptized? And this is the aha moment that in the Gospel of Matthew, we get more detail about this where Matthew tells us a bit more of why Jesus get baptized. And he gives us the answer. It's in order to fulfill all righteousness. Because John the Baptist was hesitant to uh, even baptize Jesus. In Matthew, 11, uh, Matthew 3, 14, John says, I need to be baptized by you, but you're coming to me? Like, I'm not, like, this is, this is all backwards. John's having an aha moment right now, you know? He's like, whoa, 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 this is backwards. This isn't how it's supposed to go. Then Jesus tells us, let it be so, for it is fitting in this way for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a weighty answer, and it's the two words fulfill and righteousness are so important. Jesus is saying, this is why I have come to do this. Now, what is righteousness? We know that righteousness is essentially right living, 
It's right living. Jesus has come to show us the kind of life we're supposed to live. He's the new perfect Adam. He has come to walk the path correctly. And he is identifying with sinners, that's you and me, and showing us the way to righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't have to do that, but he's doing it on our behalf as a sign of his dedication, of his obedience to the Father, and so we're called to follow his example. But we don't just get baptized because he did. That's not the only reason. When we're baptized, we're actually, on a deeper level, we're baptized into him. We're baptized into his death. Like when you were, if, if you remember your baptism, you were lowered into the water I was 12 years old. I got baptized in a Baptist church. You know, like they have that big font like in the front. Like everyone sees it, you know? And like I saw a YouTube video where a kid like did a cannonball on one of those things. <laughs> not a good idea. They're not very deep. Um, so you die to sin. You raise to new life in Christ. So that when we're baptized, we go into Christ's death. And then when you come out of the water, it's representative of burial and resurrection. That baptism is symbolic of those things and also symbolic of your entry into the church. So it's kind of a big deal. So Jesus leads us by example, by fulfilling all righteousness, by showing the way forward. Essentially, the author of faith doing what you would expect an author of faith to be doing, right? Leading from the front. You've probably heard this phrase before, uh, don't do as I do, do as I say. Did your parents ever say that to you? <laughs> it's essentially an admission of guilt. <laughs> You're saying, I'm a hypocrite, <laughs> but don't do what I'm doing, okay? And uh, that kind of rings hollow, you know, when someone says that to you. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm a hypocrite, but don't be like me. You know, there are positive aha moments in our lives where we see something new. We ask a question, we get an answer. We see something from a new perspective we didn't know before. There's also negative aha moments where you have a a light comes on and you think, oh, I could probably get away with that. That's a good idea. Like, I remember when I was in high school and I'd been driving for a few months and I realized one morning as I was going to school, hey, I have a car. I can go wherever I want. I don't have to go to school, right? This is called a negative aha moment, kids. And so I was like, I'm going to pull out of my driveway and I'm going to go park in a side street. And once my parents leave, I'll just go back home. Perfect, perfect plan, except what I didn't know is while I was turning back out of the side street, my mother saw me. And so when I got home, they knew I was home all day. I'll never forget what my dad said to me that, that night. He said, how would you like it if I skipped work every day? It's a good answer. He was pointing to the example of his life and saying, the consistency of what I'm doing, if that breaks down, if I don't lead by example, we don't have a house. Like, it all falls apart. So, you know, there's something that's so powerful about example, about leading from the front, about recognizing that talk is cheap and that action and, and going where you want other people to go is the most important thing. And that's what Jesus has done for us in his baptism. He's practicing what he's preaching. You know, there's zero examples in the Bible of affirming the behavior of saying one thing and doing the other. Zero. If you want examples, go read Matthew chapter 23, where it's not Jesus meek and mild. <laughs> if he doesn't exist, but especially not Matthew chapter 23. He is dressing down religious hypocrisy. For an entire chapter of the Bible, 
He just goes in on them, calling them whitewashed tombs, serpents, snakes. You say one thing, you do the other. You tie the 10% of spice in your income, and you treat people horribly. He goes on and on and on because, God, you can't fool God. God knows if we don't lead by example, if we don't say what we do and do what we say, God knows. So Jesus perfectly did everything he said he was going to do. And of course, baptism is indicative of that. Hypocrisy is not in his vocabulary. He's been baptized to fulfill all righteousness, an example for us to follow. My last church I was at, we had a young family coming to a service like this and a wonderful guy, uh, and he had been coming for a couple of months, and one day he came up to me and he said, I want to be baptized. I said, great. Why, why, would you want to, why do you feel led to do that? And he said, well, I've never been baptized before, and I know it's important. Then he said something really cool. He said, I want my children to see me. I want them to see me do it. And he, he realized the power of that, of that example for his kids, that the, he was going to lead them in the way that they should go, right? And, and so there's power in that, uh, in that example of right action. There's many verses in the Bible that put a high value on leading by example. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter exhorts his audience, do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. He's saying, hey, let your life lead, not just your words. Talk's cheap. Let your life lead. Paul would echo this in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Look at my example, not just what I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you how to do this. Look at my life if you want to know how it's done. <laughs> I remember in second grade, I got a very special letter in the mail one early December. As I went and opened the mailbox, when I was seven years old, I had a, there was a letter there, the return address said the North Pole. And I opened it up, and it was this brown paper, calligraphy, dated, Santa Claus had written me a letter, y'all, and it was, had my name in it. He knew I had a brother and a sister. He knew I had been a good boy. He knew uh, what, I, what I wanted for Christmas. And as soon as I read that thing, I thought, I'm taking this to show and tell. <laughs> I'm taking this to show and tell the next day of school. Fast as I could, I got up in front of the class when we, back when we did show and tell. Other kids had their games and their beach balls. Like, whatever, y'all. I held it up. I said, I don't know about y'all. Santa Claus is coming to my house. You know, it, there's power in showing, isn't there? Not just telling, but there's power in showing with our actions. You know, when we train our ushers and our greeters here, we train them to not just tell people where to go, but we try and tell them, you know, show them where to go. Well, because they might get lost, too. There's so many doors in this place. But we want, you show them as a sign of servanthood, but also um, as a sign of, of, of example, of, of, lead, of leadership. There's power in, in showing I had a former college roommate who uh, came to Christ early on, and he had a pretty dramatic experience, and he left behind, you know, the partying and all this stuff he had been doing, and a lot of those other guys came up to him many months later. They recognized the change in his life. They wanted to have lunch with him, and they sat down with him, and, and they basically said, how did you have such a change? We want what you've got. That's what they had said. You can't refute example, can you? leading from the front, just living your life. Let your life be this, the song that attracts people to Christ. I, last one church I was at, we had a young dad who tragically passed away, left behind a widow and two little kids. 
and this, uh, the, the widow was involved with a women's group, and the women of this group beautifully cared for her and, and mourned with her and watched the children and raised money, and, and it was the church at its best, you know? Like, that's, it's totally, it was so, so sad, but it was also just bit, so bittersweet, beautiful, as they cared for each other and loved and bared one another's burdens through that very difficult time of life. And there was another woman that was friends with those young women, but she didn't go to the church, but she came to that women's group and said, can I be a part of your group? Because I need what you, you have got. I want, I've seen how you love, you've loved her, and I would like that for my own life. There's power in our example, in our actions. And when we lead by example, aha moments will abound in the lives of others. The early church father, um, Augustine, tells, that, tells us that way back when, the pagans were struck by the, how Christians loved each other. And he's quoted as saying, look how they love one another. They're, they would remark that the way the church cared for each other is an, was an example for others to want to follow. You see, the first two centuries, especially of the Christian church, the church grew not because of big budgets and programming and smoke machines and lasers and, and skinny jeans and LED walls and coffee and all this stuff. If anything, some of that stuff can err on the side of pride. It's all fine things, but it can err on the side of pride. It, it's not, none of that would, was what grew the church back then, if they, even if they had it. What attracted people to Christ back then was Christians. It was their lives. It was that made them go, what is it about you that I don't have? It's not what they don't have, it's who doesn't have you. It was their righteousness they had that could be theirs freely, but it was their life, it was their example. Because this is how you shatter the misconceptions people have about Christ or Christianity is simply by the life you live and the words you choose to use and, and the way that we show others to follow in the example that Jesus has shown for us. Because this is so important, because a lot of people see God as this sort of taskmaster that's never happy. Especially in America, a lot of people live their lives, their whole lives, with their parents, their music teachers, their bosses, their coaches, their professors, are always saying, do better, be better, try harder, do more. And what we do unintentionally is that we project that onto God and say that God is the same way. He's got a whip in one hand, and he's never happy with me. But hear this. With Jesus' baptism and his life and death and resurrection on your behalf, he has met those demands for righteousness for you. So there's no condemnation left for anyone who trusts in that righteousness. Our death and our rebirth as we're baptized into Christ and his church is representative of newness of life. And the Apostle Paul would write about this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. I don't know about y'all, but I... I, I I groan for newness of life. I think our world, as the Bible does say, is in the birth pangs. 
It's in a place of groaning for newness of life, for rebirth, for resurrection. You see it everywhere. We, we look, and people are trying to find that newness of life in all the wrong places. But we live in a place of groaning, hungering for righteousness, for someone, anyone, to give me some answers and to raise new life to these dry bones. The world is groaning. So many people feel their best years are behind them. Or I'm, not, I'm never going to be good enough. But here's the deal, especially when it comes to baptism. Baptism is not the end of something, but it is the beginning of new life. It is the beginning of something. It's not this, this checkbox of, of, your, of your social to-do list for your kids or something, and then you get it over with. Jesus didn't approach it that way. He said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. It's not just a destination, but it's the beginning of something new. There was a man in the Bible who asked a really important question, and Jesus gave him an answer that led to one of the greatest aha moments in history. And we are recipients of that when we, re- we read John chapter 3. And a man named, named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a very well-educated man who understood the Jewish law and all the Hebrew scriptures. And he was intrigued by Jesus. He saw him do wonders and miracles. And he knew there's something about this guy that I can't put my finger on and I can't shake it. So he goes to Jesus in the cover of night and he starts to pepper him with questions. There's probably more questions than he even asks that we even get to read in John chapter 3. But Jesus essentially says, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, a very wise man, says, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can, it, can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus doesn't rebuke that question and say, oh, don't be so stupid, Nicodemus. No, he doesn't do that. He says, he gives him an answer. He doesn't turn away his question. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, I'm going to touch on that real quick, born of water and the spirit. If you look at what Jesus is doing, he, did the, he does this a lot, where he compares a physical reality to a spiritual truth. He's talking about flesh, being born of a woman, uh, as compared to the spiritual rebirth of the Holy Spirit. So when he says be born of water and the Spirit, he very well could be referring to just birth of a woman, not baptism. So, some people throughout history have interpreted this as Jesus saying you must be baptized to be saved. That is not true. It's very important, but it's not conditional to being right with God. He's juxtaposing these things in teaching in this way to show this truth that the wind of the Spirit comes and blows wherever he chooses, and that just as everyone has been born physically, right, you must also then eventually one day be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of heaven. So then he goes on, do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. He's implying the Holy Spirit comes from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we know that wind is always present. We know that wind, you've never seen wind. You've seen the effects of wind on the water. You know that wind is real, but you've never seen it. It's a similar thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present. 
He's always present with his people. Sometimes he blows stronger than other times, but he's always around. He's always with us. He's here with us here and now. And Jesus is saying, if anyone wants to, be up to know the kingdom of God for themselves, you must be born again. And the way you're born again is for the Holy Spirit to do that within you. And how do you do that? We do it by faith, by trusting Christ by faith. I know there's a lot of Christians here in the room, probably watching at home as well. There's probably somebody who's not. And just to tell you that just as you've been born into the world physically, as all people have been, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again by the Holy Spirit. This is a truth from the mouth of Jesus. This is maybe the ultimate aha moment for any human being who is alive today. It's probably the most important aha moment you'll ever have because we need the Holy Spirit to enliven us, to give us a fresh touch from God, to remind us we're not alone, to help God's words come alive in our hearts and minds, to encourage us, to comfort us. These are all the things and more that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And we receive it and encounter him by faith. That's why he's here with us until Jesus returns. As Jesus said, I will be with you until the end of the age. Because he knew I'm sending the helper to you after I'm gone. And he's here, he has been here all along. For those that have ears to hear and eyes to see, that reach out by faith, he will come to you. So we're going to spend a few moments and just wait on God in prayer. And use this time with an open heart before God. Just to, just to wait on him. And we're not looking for emotion. That's not really what a life of faith is about. You might not feel anything when the Holy Spirit moves in your heart and your life, and that's okay. But it is saying, God, I want to trust you at this moment to make me a new creation in you. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do indeed wait on you in this time. We remember your words, Lord, where you told us that this through that ultimate question of how can we encounter new life? The Holy Spirit comes and goes as he pleases. But God, we believe and know that you're here and now with us. God, we want to encounter you in a new and fresh way, not just play church. But God, we want to know that you're real in our hearts and lives. So Holy Spirit, come into our hearts and lives in this place today. I believe you're calling us to reach out to you to be close to you, and that you're here with us. God, I pray that you touch any area of our life that's broken, that's hiding in darkness, that's hurting, that's full of shame or guilt or fear, that thing that doesn't feel alive today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you've come to make us new. We receive you by faith and know that you're present here with us. Lord Jesus said that anyone who will ask, they will receive. Anyone who knocks, the door will be opened. If we ask anything in your name, Jesus, that you will do it. Maybe the most important thing we'd ever ask, the most important aha moment is to ask you into our lives.
to know that our, our life is in your hands and that you will carry us from this life and into the life to come. Thank you, Jesus, that you identify with sinners, that you love us. You got baptized to fulfill all righteousness, to stand with us, to lead the way, to make straight the pathways of the Lord, to bring down every hill and raise up every valley so that all men and women might know the way to the Father. God, you're amazing. And it's in your name we do trust and pray. Amen.